Great song, isn't it? There was Jesus. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to folks tuning in at Bensville, hopefully now as well. And from people who are watching on from home, welcome. It's great that you're that you're with us today. Uh, so yes, this is the fourth message in our series, Follow to Lead. And, and the whole idea of this series, if you've been uh, watching and listening along, is, is that we are followers before we are leaders. That our leadership of, of others actually flows out uh, of our leadership of ourselves. And our self-leadership always flows from a place of following. We follow to lead. Andrew kicked us off. Uh, three weeks ago, and, and our starting point, of course, it, it was following Jesus. And Andrew reminded us that, that Jesus' call to his disciples, all of his disciples, all of us, was simply to follow him. And he gave this great analogy. He said that following Jesus isn't this Simon Says kind of following where God stands at a distance and barks orders and tries to catch us out when we make a mistake. Rather, it's more like follow the leader where our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we move through life together desiring to function more and more like him and our mistakes don't disqualify us. It was, it was a great message. Uh, from there, Kev, from that starting point, Kev um, spoke about leading ourselves and that leading ourselves uh, it is a place of surrender to Jesus. And as we do that, then, then Jesus' purposes, they transplant and they replace our own. And leading ourselves as followers of Jesus, this takes practice. And it's only from this place, this place of, of self-leadership then, that we can think of leading anybody else in any kind of healthy or sustainable or Christ-like way. Andrew then spoke last week about our very first and our primary leadership domain, and that was in our, our families, both our biological family as well as our spiritual one. And we can lead from a place of followership in our homes, whether that's as a, as a parent or as a child or a brother or sister or auntie or uncle or grandparent, whatever. And so this morning we move to another important domain of leadership and that is the workplace. How do we lead faithfully at work? How are we to think about being disciples who make new disciples at the office or on the work site or in the classroom, in a, in a virtual office or in a factory or a showroom or cleaning the toilets, our, our work, whatever that means for us, our workplaces are significant discipleship environments. We spend incredible amounts of time and effort and energy and, and training and imagination in these places. And so it's of huge importance that as followers of Jesus that we would consider what it means to lead faithfully at work in those places that make up so much of our lives. And in fact, if the, if the Sunday gathering does anything, it's to equip us for the Monday scattering. It's to send us out to lead faithfully in our homes and in our places of work. Now, we'll see if this clicker works. Oh, look at that. It did. 
Noah and I might be tag teaming if it if it stops working. But we're, we're going to look at this topic of uh, leading at work this morning in three parts. I'm going to ask three questions. I'm going to start with this idea of a leader. What, what is a leader? And then we're going to ask, well, what is, what is the biblical mandate? What, is, what does the Bible require of us? What does it say to us about work? And then the third question we're going to ask is, what, what is our calling? This is not a how-to guide on, on leadership. It's not going to be about leadership skills or practices. I'm not going to talk about how to be a good leader at school or at work. Uh, rather, this message is right back down below the surface again in our discipleship model, if you remember. Down below the surface in, in the place of our roots and specifically uh, that taproot about core belief. What do we really believe about work? What are our guiding and orienting attitudes and do they line up with scripture? So what, what is a leader? Um, Dr. Robert Clinton is a retired professor of leadership at Fuller Seminary and, and this man has shaped my, my life and my faith significantly over the last 10 years. He spent his entire academic career looking at this idea of leadership. What is it that raises up leaders and particularly Christian leaders and what also is it that would take us out and he defines a leader this way I need you Noah he says that uh, a leader is a person so far so good a leader is a person with God-given capacity and God-given responsibility to influence a specific group of God's people towards God's purposes. It's a great definition. And, and one of the first things you notice about, about this definition compared to most definitions about leadership is that this is not really about the leader. It's not really about what the leader can do or what the leader wants. Rather, it's all about God, about what God can do and about what God wants. And it's about God and others. The next thing that you might notice is that this definition is big enough to include all of us because we are all equipped and we are all positioned to influence others towards God's purposes. He gives us unique talents and abilities and, and life experiences and then he locates us for influence. And we know this, but that influence usually does not come with a title. It's not about being a boss. It's not about being the parent or the pastor or a coach, though it certainly can include those things. But God places his people in positions of responsibility specifically for the purpose of influencing others. And whether that's a few mates at work, whether it's kids in the playground, whether it's a whole classroom, whether it's a team or a department or a congregation, maybe it's a whole business Maybe it's even a whole nation. But we are equipped and we are positioned to influence specific groups of God's people towards God's purposes, towards his vision for life. So that essentially others might come to this place of, of, of understanding that they are loved and that life has meaning and that they can be connected to the true source of that love to the true source of life. God's purposes are always towards his dream 
of life together toward his dream of right relationship. Right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, right relationship with all of creation. This is our Christian hope. And the Hebrew word for this hope, for this right relationship, is shalom. Leaders influence others toward shalom. So whether I'm a student, whether I'm a teacher or a plumber or a doctor or a pastor, even if I'm a hedge fund manager, we are all called to influence specific groups of people towards shalom. It doesn't necessarily mean that that we're preaching the gospel, though sometimes it does. But it does mean that we embody this future hope and that we're always ready to give a reason for that hope. This is what Peter says, if you click the next one, Noah. Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. And we know that our workplaces need hope. I think if we've been around long enough, many of us, most of us, recognise work has got its frustrations. Less than 41% of people are happy at work. It's less than, or 26% of people at work are just downright miserable. And I reckon if you included the fact that more than 40 million people are trapped in modern-day slavery, that 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 stat would be even worse. 26% of people are downright miserable at at work and it's getting worse. 75% of people are just looking for a way to make work more meaningful. 56% of us want just to feel as though we're making some difference in the world and nearly half are desperately afraid that we've made the wrong job choice. Our offices and our work sites and our classrooms, they need meaning. They need hope. And whether or not you and I, whether or not we will be agents of that hope, it's going to depend significantly on our framing narrative. It's going to depend on what story we think that we're in. Because it's our stories, it's our, it's our worldview that tells us how to make sense of this thing called work. Our worldview, on one hand, it, it could tell us that work is just a necessary evil, that it's a drudgery, that's something that I just have to put up with in order to put food on the table. On the other hand, our, our worldview, our framing story, it can tell us that, that work is the, is the place of self-actualisation. Work is the place where I actually find my true value, where I can find my true expression. Our framing story can tell us that we should climb the corporate ladder to get to the top and secure titles of, of power and influence and notoriety and that's where my hope lies. My narrative can tell me that, that my identity is determined and that it's categorised by my work, by my qualifications, by my income. The truth is, work was never meant to carry such a burden. It's just not up to the task of being the source of our identities or the instrument of our hopes. We need a bigger story. 
We need a a narrative that is large enough to ground our identities within, big enough to orient our hopes toward without looking to work to be providing these things for us or blaming work for damaging our identities and dashing our hopes. We need a story that's bigger than consumerism, bigger than individualism, bigger than success, bigger than prosperity. We need a story where work finds its rightful place. And you and I, we are carriers of just such a story. So what does the Bible say? If you can click that, Noah. So how does work fit into the story that is told in Scripture? Well, like most things, like most things about this life, if we want to find out what it was that that God had in mind, then we need to go back to the start. We need to go back back to the garden and back to Genesis. If you click that again, mate. And so here's, here's how the Hebrew scripture opens up. Chapter 1 of, of, of Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Five words in and work appears. And these opening verses of, of, of Genesis, they, it tells us the story of God's cosmos creating work. And how does the Genesis narrative, how does God himself describe the quality of his work? What does he say? It's it's good. Click it again, mate. God saw that it was good. Five times he says this. Five times God looks at the work of his hands and he says that this is good. And then on the sixth time when he stands back and, and surveys everything, including human that he's placed in the garden, he stands back and he says, It is very good. God is a worker who does good work and he does all kinds of work. He's a geologist and he's an astronomer and he's a landscaper and he's an engineer and he's a biologist and an artist and a decorator and he's a gardener. Click it again. And he's a tailor. Click it again. The work that God does and that he declares good, it seems to follow something of a pattern. There's something of a formula here. Look at this. One more. He's doing a good job. In the beginning, God created the heavens and and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's a beautiful poem, the Genesis narrative. But look at these words, formless and empty. So this is what God is is working with here. Now the Hebrew words for this, for for formless and empty, give it another click. These are really cool words. Tohu vavohu. Formless, empty, void, chaos. Come on, say it with me. Tohu vavohu. You should see what you look like. Tohu vavohu. Um, Empty, waste, confusion, chaos. But then God does something with tohu vavohu and then he declares it good. So look at this in verse 9. And God said, 
Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And so here's another cool Hebrew word. Let's see it, Noah. Tove. Tove here is the word for good. It's excellent. It's valuable. It's pleasant. Tove. Great name for a cafe. Cafe Tove. As, as we look through this, this creation account, so th- this idea of tov, of, of what is good, this seems to have, an, have a number of qualities about it too. Um, good, good has criteria. Uh, give that another click, mate. So, so there seems to be the, these criteria of, of order and beauty and benefit. Now, these aren't mine. I'm not that clever. This comes from Tim Mackey, the, the Bible Project guy. So we see that God is creating order out, out of disorder. So he creates night and day, earth and sky, land and sea. So something that was without order, God is creating order. He's creating beauty. In chapter 2, verse 8, we see that God create, created trees pleasing to the eye. For no other purpose, God creates beauty and he creates it abundantly. And he creates for benefit. So he created trees that are bearing, uh, bearing fruit and seed for food. So he's creating for, for practical benefit, for a purpose. He's creating order and beauty and benefit. Another click. This is the work that God was doing at creation. God is making tov out of tohu vavohu. He is making good out of chaos, out of emptiness. He is taking latent potential and he's creating order and beauty and benefit. And now here's the kicker. We see that in in chapter 1, verse 26, that God said, and remember this is our triune God, God says, let us make Adam. Adam. Adam simply means, the, be- the best translation is dirt person. <laughs> right? Um, earthling. Let us make Adam, let us make earthlings in our image, in our likeness. So, so human beings were created in the image and the likeness of a creating and, and ordering and beautifying God. A worker. And because this is who God is, then we too were given that responsibility to make tov out of tohu vavohu. I like saying that. Um, To create order and beauty and benefit out of disorder, out of latent potential. And then we see throughout this creation account in Genesis that God is assigning a range of roles to Adam and to Adam and Eve as, as part of this working mandate. Uh, click it again, mate. So, so they were told to, to be fruitful, to go and, and fill the earth. Adam and Eve were given authority to rule, to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living creature. They were told to go and to subdue the land, to tame the land, to cultivate it, to make something of it, to care for it. 
Adam placed Adam in the garden to tend to it, to steward it, to manage it, and to name. Just like God names night and day and land and, and sea, Adam, human, is now given the same responsibility over the animals. And naming is important. Naming is how we create meaning, how we capture knowledge. So we were made to create order and beauty and benefit out of, out of the latent potential of creation and also out of the disarray that we've created. And when we do this, we do it in a way that, that resembles our God, that resembles our creator. This is our mandate. Because we are made in the image of a working God, then, then doing work, doing good work is in our design. And that's why good work still brings us joy. Uh, look at this quote. This is by Dorothy Sayers in Why Work, right back in 1942. I love this. She writes, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. If we are actors in this grand narrative of the Bible, if we are followers of Jesus, submitted to his agenda, then realistically, Christians ought to have a reputation for making good tables, for being great plumbers and competent surgeons and wonderful artists and attentive teachers and diligent students. Our first mandate as leaders in the way that we've defined it and in the light of this framing story, our first mandate is that we would work to create order and beauty and benefit and that we would influence others towards those ends as well. And we image God when we, when we work and when we lead in this way. Theologians have called this the cultural mandate. It is the mandate, the commission to cultivate, to care for, to labour, to inhabit but this is only half the story. So we spoke a number of weeks ago uh, that when, when we chose to construct our own law, to, to create our own economy, to declare our own regency in Genesis 3, that God graciously sent us into our own territory, but it was a territory that was apart from, from the eternal order, a territory that is apart from, from the fullness and the source of life and goodness. And the Genesis narrative says this it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. And so now we approach work as ones who, who are outside of the garden. And our work has been frustrated. So our, our labour has, has been, uh, has, is now contending with thorns and thistles and, and dangers and difficulty. And to be honest, it is only by the grace of God, though, that anything grows at all. 
It is only by his mercy that there is any beauty, that there is any order, that there's any goodness. Although frustration entered our work, that that cultural mandate um, was never withdrawn. In fact, the fall introduced a a second mandate, a, a second calling. Because although we rejected God, he never let go of humanity and he never gave up on, on his dream of life together. He never gave up, gave up on his vision of shalom. And certainly by the time, we, the time we see Abraham and Sarah come along in Genesis 12, we see that God's already recruiting his people into the project of repair. And in fact, all of Israel was intended to be Uh, an an example of this project of repair, calling all of the nations back into a loving and and connected relationship with the Creator, with each other, with all of creation, putting the world back to right order. The story tells us, however, that such a project was impossible without the very source of that love taking up residence among us and indeed taking up residence in our hearts. So now, because of Christ, you and I now, we carry on this project of repair and we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit who was within us. Now this, this work, Paul says, this common calling, he describes it as the ministry of reconciliation. This was the work of Christ and since now Christ dwells within us by his spirit, then then this project of repair is now our work as well. So look at this. If you want to click that one, Noah. So this is Paul, Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We know that, we know that every single act of the Holy Spirit is a, is a manoeuvre of reconciliation. Every act of the Holy Spirit is pointed in the direction of shalom. And so since this Spirit is is within us, then we are all energised toward reconciliation and toward shalom, toward right relationship. Now, Now, we can call this the Great Commission to go and make disciples. We can call it the Great Commandment to love one another as Christ loves us. We can, we can call it the mission of God or, or missio Dei. We can call it the ministry of reconciliation. It is all the same thing. It is the restoration of right relationships between all things in accordance with God's kingdom order. And the main mechanism of this, the, the most basic building block of this restoration is disciples who make new disciples, who make new disciples. And you remember we described it this way a couple of weeks ago, Noah. We said that as, as loved people, we go and love people into becoming the kind of people who go and love people. 
That's it. And we can do this because love, capital L, love, resides within us. Loving one another with the same love that Christ first loved us. And we're doing this in ever-expanding, in, in family and community and system and company and, and nation-changing ways. This is the mission of God. And along with his spirit, God has given this mission to us. You know, I think we can waste so much time wondering what our calling is. Or maybe thinking that we don't even have one. We can spin our wheels trying to discern what what job, what, what training, what ministry we're called to. You don't have to wonder what your calling is. It's very simple. If you declare Christ as Lord, then you and I, we are called to follow him into this ministry of reconciliation, this project of repair, restoring relationships between all things in the power of the Spirit, making earth more like heaven. That's what we pray for. It's the shalomification of planet earth. And because we are reconciled with the Creator, reconciled through Christ, then we are agents of that repair. And in the power of the Spirit, we work to restore relationships between all things. We work to restore our relationships with one another, relationships between families, relationships between rich and poor, relationships between bosses and employees, relationships between young and old. We work to restore relationships between people who vote in different ways. We work to restore relationships between, between groups that believe different things and are compelled by different dreams even relationships between whole races and whole nations. We work to restore right relationship with creation, addressing issues to do with climate change and pollution and land management. These are ministries of reconciliation. And we work to restore right relationship with our creator between God and people loving one another into the kingdom. And our primary domains of this call He's at home and at work. Every workplace, every classroom, every home is a discipleship environment. It's a place of reconciliation, more than a Sunday church service will ever be. Now, while it's true that we have this one common common calling, we will all have multiple assignments and assignments will 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 be various roles and careers and these things are going to come and go but throughout all of these assignments the call remains the same we are ministers of reconciliation we are we are ambassadors of Christ we are agents of hope we are signposts of shalom so don't stress out trying to figure out what your calling is because you're in it Your calling is where you are right now. Whether you're an architect or a software developer or a cleaner or a professor or a pastor or a school student, within all of these assignments, you are called to be a minister of reconciliation, an agent of repair. You carry with you a shalom-shaped hope and the world desperately needs it. 
If you want to click that again. Thanks, Noah. He's good, isn't he? So, so we have a role. We have a role. We are leaders. We are people with, with God-given capacities, with God-given responsibility to lead God's people towards shalom. We have a mandate, the cultural mandate, to create order and beauty and benefit out of the world, to make good. And we have a calling as ones who are saved by grace, the body of Christ, that's us, that's you and me, all of us are called into this ministry of reconciliation. We work as restorers of relationships in our homes, in our schools, in our universities, our offices, in our, our theatres, in our work sites. And so what all of this means is that you and I, we are missionaries. We're full-time missionaries, regardless of our job title. We are full-time missionaries because God is a missionary God and he dwells within us full-time. And this, this leading others towards shalom and creating order and beauty and benefit and, and living out our calling as, as ministers of reconciliation, this is our missionary job description. You're a missionary. You're a missionary with a parenting assignment. You're a missionary with a studying assignment, a plumbing assignment, a locksmith assignment, a teaching assignment, a table waiting assignment, a reception assignment. You could be a missionary with a golf assignment, an artist assignment. You get the idea. And so this is where our challenge is, is how will we lead tomorrow? Will we begin our day by intentionally taking up that posture of a follower, by committing to lead ourselves, taking on Christ's agenda rather than our own, so that we might lead others in a way that, that cooperates with the Spirit's energy as missionaries? Do we approach our, our day that way tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday? Or do we slip into the gravity of the world's narratives and, and bemoan the frustration of work or climb over one another to get to the top? Because the choice, by the grace of God, is ours. What will we do with that choice when the alarm goes off tomorrow morning? Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, I do want to give you thanks that you never gave up on us, that this dream in your heart, this dream in your heart of life together, of relationships that work, that you never gave up on that and that you are calling us toward that dream and you haven't left, you haven't left us to our own capability, to our own best efforts, but rather your, your very spirit you have placed within us to equip and empower and position us to be agents of that life together. Would you empower us to say yes to that call tomorrow? Would you work within us such that we would be drawn, that we would be agents, that we would embody that hope and that others would ask the question, 
We commit our week ahead to you by the power of your spirit and in the name of your son. Amen. Amen.